everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Yolo County Public Defender Tracy Olson. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you for having me. So public defenders have traditionally gotten a bit of a bad rap and why is that and is it an accurate criticism I think it's a wholly inaccurate criticism I think it's because historically and in some states it's still true there's public defender offices have been so severely underfunded that they're literally treading water to help out their clients California is is not like that at least not in the same way California so I think of the 58 counties, a little over 30 of them have institutional offices like Yolo County does, which means that they're a governmental office with a department chief and paid staff. A lot of the other models, especially in smaller counties in California, are contract attorneys. But that's, and that allows us to then form almost a public defender statewide force, meaning that if I have issues that I have not encountered or I have legal cases with issues that we have not encountered, I can rely on anybody throughout the state um, for help. And we work together as a team like that. So the bad rap, um, I don't know if it's necessarily undeserved in the sense that clients are not getting the best representation. That's true sometimes, but I don't think that's true in California. And I think it has more to do with the funding um, that goes their way versus their talents or their incredible intelligence or their hard work ethic. I think what's sorely under, misunderstood is that public defenders, no matter where they are, choose this job because they really are invested in getting positive outcomes for clients. And I've definitely been spoiled. I've gotten to see several counties which have top-notch public defenders. And I think where where things go awry is when, when you have attorneys who either are not actually public defenders, they're contracted attorneys and asked to pick up the uh, load. And and then also you have cases where, you know, one attorney has several hundred cases a year, which they can't possibly do. Right. And the, the nice thing about a public defender office is we support each other. So we have in-house investigations, we have in-house social workers, and we have these teams of attorneys. It's not like a one-man law office where if I go on vacation, there's no one there to tend to my clients. Or if I get sick, I have to continue everything for an indeterminate period of time because something happened in my personal life. The the real benefit of this team atmosphere 
is that clients get the full force of the public defender's office versus just one attorney. And no matter how great that attorney might be, unless they have support, it's just not going to be the same experience for clients. So why did you decide to become a public defender? Uh, I became, so in law school, I, I can tell you, I went to law school believing I was going to be a prosecutor. And I think that's because when I look back on it, I was raised in a very conservative family and I did not have much life experience. And I was probably influenced by what I saw on TV, which was the very binary prosecutors are good and they save the world and they find these bad guys and they put them in prison. I mean, that's just the message that I got in the 80s and early 90s. I went to law school and the very first Christmas, I chose to spend my Christmas break down in Texas with an organization where students were allowed to represent people from Central America that were seeking political asylum because of persecution. And I was appointed to represent a Guatemalan gentleman who had a story that would break your heart. And he had, he bore the scars of the torture that he suffered in Guatemala. And he, he what he wanted, like at the end of the day, what he wanted was to come to the United States and be safe and then bring his family to be safe. And I remember this, it wasn't a jury trial, it was a court trial, which means the judge makes the decision, not, not the jury. But I remember conducting that trial and being just kind of appalled that the government, in my mind, wasn't listening to what my client was saying, wasn't looking at his scars, wasn't, wasn't looking at him as if he mattered. And that experience led me thereafter to always know that no matter what I did with my career, it was going to be on the side of the person that needed the help, that needed the defending. Because clearly, I mean, this, this gentleman, it was not a good versus bad situation, and, and immigration rarely is, but um, that's what led me to, the, to want to be a public defender. Then I interned at the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office in Minneapolis and worked there for a year and a half. I also had some experience in the misdemeanor clinic in law school, and it just everything I did thereafter was helping people accused of crimes. And then I took the California State Bar applied to every single public defender's office that I could commute to from my home. I was hired by Yolo County first, and I've been in Yolo County since 1998. So what do you see as unique about Yolo County, both the good and the bad? Sure. Yolo County, because of our size, when you get the right people in the room, we're really able to make change faster than some of these big counties. You know, if you're in a kayak and you need to take a right, you put the oar in the water and you go right. If you're in a big county like LA or San Diego or Orange and you're in this Princess cruise ship, it takes so long to, to make that turn. So it's our size and when I see yeah, the right people in the room, we have, um, I really appreciate working for our CAO, Patrick Blacklock, and I really appreciate working with a lot of the department heads that we have in this county. I think that they're um, really want, most of them want to do what's right for clients. So when you get those people in the same room and we all get our heads together and we all can cooperate and make good decisions, I think that Yolo County is unique in that we are able to make change to help clients at a far faster rate with a lot less red tape than, than either bigger counties or sometimes even counties our size, our size that do have that red tape. 
I think that's really great about Yolo County. Um, you said uniquely bad. Yeah. I don't know, honestly, if there's something uniquely bad. I think there are things that are wrong with our system. I think there's some things that are wrong with um, how the system's implemented, but I don't think those are unique. And I think that there are things that our county as a whole have become very committed, especially around racial issues and race equity issues, to look at with a, with a critical eye and fix. So I'm not prepared to say there's anything uniquely bad about Yolo County. Fair enough. Um, and what do you see as the biggest problems overall in the criminal justice system? Well, there is a, well, there's two, two main things, I think. One, there's a critical over-reliance on incarceration. We incarcerate people before they're convicted of crimes and for things like we don't believe that they're going to be able to come to court on the day, on the date that we give them. Uh, we incarcerate people as a sanction. We incarcerate people when we're mad at them. We incarcerate people because we think we're going to somehow deter behavior. We, we know incarceration alone, all the studies that, that have looked at this, does not lead to re rehabilitation. And I think that we have stopped, I think it's so, so historically rooted, I think sometimes we stop and think about what we're doing. And when I say we, I'm talking about the system, right? The judges and prosecutors and probation and, and us, and we all play a part of this. And it's amazing to me how many times we'll go into court and somebody will get remanded, which means put in jail, for kind of a scheduling issue. Like, they, they, yeah, they missed their appointment. They went to, to work instead. Or their car broke down and they didn't have a phone that worked. Or maybe they relapsed on drugs, and the, the solution is not necessarily to put them in jail, but is to call their counselor and, and up their counseling sessions, or re-refer them to counseling because they missed their, their counseling session. There's just so many things we could be doing other than incarceration. We know it doesn't work, and it's incredibly expensive. We spend millions and millions and millions of dollars incarcerating people that, in my opinion, do not need to be incarcerated. And the other big thing, I think, is that the, the dehumanization that happens when you see press releases or you hear stories or you look on Twitter, you'll hear violent offender. News reports say this all the time. A violent offender, um, you know, an abuser, uh, people that are, are, are called these criminals because it's a label and it really just seeks to dehumanize someone. I, I've seen someone be referred to as a violent offender who is 35 years old had a violent offense from when they were 18, 18 or 19 years old. And it wasn't, you know, wasn't death or mayhem or anything like that. It was a fight. But now this person is labeled a violent offender for the rest of his life. And the truth of the matter is he's a human being with a family and children and an employer and potential and hopes and dreams like everybody else. And I think until we start accepting that, we're always going to dehumanize the people that I represent. And when that happens, it makes it easy to send them to jail and it makes them easy to send them to prison. And it should, that should not be easy. That should be something that is a difficult decision that is left when everything else fails and only when you know it's going to work. And, and I think you raise an interesting point because, um, you know, I always get people pushing back on me and say, well, would you want that person moving next door to you and your family and your small children. And, 
you know, I have a different perspective than a lot of people because I've actually gotten to know some of these folks that have uh, passed convictions for violent offenses. And some of them, absolutely, I would trust to move next door. Some of them have changed their lives around. They've gotten off of drugs. They've dealt with childhood trauma and uh, mental health issues. And, and and you can't one size fit, fit at all, right? You cannot, not, no, not even close. And it, you know, one of the things that happened very recently is I live in Vacaville. And so we were, we like Yolo County, we're dealing with some evacuations that had to do with the fire. But there was a street in Vacaville, Pleasant Valley, uh, that was, it's kind of country and a lot of the houses got lost, but, but some of the streets close to there who showed up to save houses were um, crews, uh, fire crews from the prison. And when that group of guys showed up to save that house, it was arms wide open. Thank you so much. I know I read some newspaper articles about how grateful people were. And it's because this prison crew, these men, were allowed to show what they can do. They weren't locked in a cell. They weren't disregarded. They weren't, um, you know, looked at like they could, could, could contribute nothing. They can contribute. They did contribute. And I think that it's giving people opportunity to show what they can do and trusting them to do that and giving them the tools to do, to do that. And it's also very much what you said is getting to know people for who they are today and you know, I've been accused of trying to explain people's histories and the trauma and the survivor uh, mentality they have as an excuse for crime. It's not an excuse for crime, but I think when you understand sometimes why crime happens, then you're able to pinpoint what help is needed, and then you can change behavior. And it's not going to happen overnight. These problems didn't accrue overnight. The solutions aren't going to be overnight. But very much once I start telling even the most conservative people I know in my life who think what I do is crazy for a living. They don't understand it. But when I tell them an individual story, then you can see something click and they go, oh, but the problem is they think that's an exception. And what I need to you know, try to do a better job of is making sure people understand that's usually the rule. Usually when I tell, tell you my stories about all my clients, you'll have that aha moment of like, oh, I get it now. I understand why that happened. And I will root for them because they start to see my clients as humans versus the label criminal. So is that the key to getting over fear to um, have the public see these people as people as opposed to monsters or aberrants or something else? Well, and the, the narrative keeps getting pushed about what the worst possible thing they've done. And it could have been 20 years ago. It could have been, you know, it could have been last year. What, but it's the, always the narrative is this worst possible thing. If you look at newspaper articles, and let's say there's been a development on a case, it will regurgitate 85% of the article from what happened last year or the year before, what happened originally, and then just add the little update. But what, what, what people are interested in, I guess, because that's why the articles are written that way, are the salacious details. And it does not do clients any good to never be able to escape those labels. And I think that when we start using different language, and this is all developed over time, but instead of saying, I represent offenders, I, rep you know, I represent people accused of crime. Instead of seeing a newspaper article that says such and such is a murderer, and such and such was convicted of murder in 1982, or you know whatever it might be. But it really is about changing the language 
because then that forces you, I think, sometimes to, to choose your language a little bit more carefully. And people in general, I think, need to work on that. So today, earlier today, I went uh, to Walnut Creek, of all places, and um, John Burris was having a press conference there uh, with this family. Uh, Middle class, black family. Um, Their their son uh, had a mental health uh, crisis. Um, The police knew the family, had been working with the family, and still it escalated to the point where they ended up shooting and killing him. And uh, they were able to gain um, a $4 million settlement uh, from the city, and they're starting up a foundation to help uh, reform the police department. But this is, you know, an, an interesting case because often these police shootings are, are, are not middle-class families with college educations. They, they're working class, and uh, most of them don't have college educations, but this really, you know, hits home uh, in a way that I think a, a lot of these may, may not for, for people because they say, well, you know, uh, if, if these people would just listen to what the cops were saying, uh, this wouldn't be happening. Um, and so this has been kind of the narrative this year, uh, the discussion that's been happening in, 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 the, uh, in the country, really, uh, about police shootings and defunding the police. What is your take on all of this? Well, when you talk about defunding the police, I think it scares people because I think people believe that means abolish the police. My opinion is the police cannot do well everything that is asked of them. And it's not probably even fair that they're asked to deal with all the things they're asked to deal with. And I'm talking about people in crisis, people that are having mental health breaks, people that are homeless, people that are suffering very severely from substance use disorders, dealing with victims of crime, dealing with, you know, children, dealing with adults. They're asked to deal with everything. And they just can't do all of that well. Um, I don't even know if they want to do all of that, but that's, that's what we've got. So defunding in my mind really just means figure out what you want your police to do, train them to do that, figure out what you want social workers to do, train them and give them access to those situations. The same with mental health clinicians. Everybody that has, every adult or every parent that has has a child that is mentally ill, I think there's probably something in the back of their mind that's afraid for those kids all the time. Because they know that when you suffer, for instance, from mental illness, you're, you're responding to things that are not reality sometimes, right? There's hallucinations and delusions and just symptoms that are cloud judgment to an outsider. But for that person, it makes total sense. So you can't just take a mentally ill person that's going through a terrible crisis and order them to do something and expect them to do it. But that is what police predominantly have been trained to do is order people to do things and expect them to do it. Um, it's not just people with mental illness that, that get in these situations. It's people that are scared. It's people that have had bad um, experiences with police in the past and think something terrible is going to happen to them again. Um, people that are you know, on drugs or alcohol. And we need to put in those situations the people that are going to get the best results. I've had clients who were being taken to the hospital by a parent 
the mental, you know, mental hospital by their parents, um, that one of the kids was going to jump out of the car on the freeway. So that, that dad pulled over, didn't know what to do, called the police, police showed up, and it turns into this fight with a police officer because it just escalated to the point where, you know, he was arrested and, and booked in the jail for a felony instead of taking the hospital to treat what his mental illness was, the symptoms were. Um, I've seen other clients that are having breakdowns in a car and the police end up using flash um, flash bombs kind of on them and, and stick it or send in the canine because it took about 45 minutes for without any success. It was 45 minutes or so of negotiation on the side of the police officer. There's no response. So it, it escalated into that situation. There are just so many situations where I think people with different skill sets and it takes a long time to get a skill set that is going to lead to a successful outcome with a severe mental health or, or other sort of issue. And I just don't think it's fair to expect police officers to perfect all of those skills. And, and therefore we have to put in place the people that are going to, like I said, have the best outcome. And that to me is, is defunding the police, um, not abolishing them, but making sure that the situations get the outcomes that people deserve so that you don't have parents that are losing children, so you don't have siblings losing their brothers and sisters. Um, and it, it tends to be people, like you said, that are not middle class, but unless it's mental illness, that kind of crosses everything. You can't, you can't relegate that to poverty as the excuse. And that kind of becomes equalizer for a lot of people as well. And I definitely agree with that. Um, although, you know, people that are middle class have a lot more resources at uh, their fingertips than uh, people that don't. Although I can tell you from personal experience, sometimes that doesn't even help. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, you know, the, the system, uh, the mental health system itself uh, has uh, a whole host of problems that haven't been addressed either. Um, and I think, you know, some people like myself uh, are kind of hoping that maybe some of the police resources can go into the mental health field because we don't have a lot of resources there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that CCP had voted on very recently was to hire a mental health clinician to go into the field with sheriff department, um, I think probation, sort of what the cities are doing. But it's still you're sending someone in with a police officer. And if I could, if I could do this in from the tracing perspective, I would send people in without the police officers, unless the situation called for it. It would be up to the discretion of the mental health clinician or the social worker that was going into the field. If they felt unsafe and they needed a, a police officer, then they would have that option. But not to start off with police officers, because I have plenty of clients that just seen a police officer with a gun and a badge and interacting is a negative thing. And those jurisdictions um, that have adopted that model find that there's actually very, very few times when the police officers are needed in the situation. And then that's also where you free up funds because if all you're doing is sending a police officer and a mental health clinician, you just doubles the cost of that call without guaranteeing necessarily you're always going to get a better outcome. So I think there's cost-effective ways to do it that also um, take police out of the situation and you can get the superior options like that. Are you familiar at all with the CAHOOTS model? Yeah, I am. And that's that's been in place for several years now. 
I actually just sent a request for them for some specific data, but I read all about them in the newspapers. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, what they were talking about at the press conference today. And I had actually read about that in uh, Alex Vital's The End of Policing. Uh, he's got a chapter that talks about, and, and that's basically a nonprofit. They get grants and, uh, and they get some funding from uh, the jurisdiction, and then they work with the police uh, to uh, have m mental health response that's separate from the police department. Right. And their data was a very, very few times did they have to call in a police officer. They did not need that level of enforcement. Yeah, which it, which is critical because, you know, part of the problem that I see uh, and I've seen it personally is that, you know, you get somebody in a crisis mode, they, they're not thinking straight. Uh, they can't be reasoned with. And, and, and so sometimes, you know, they see the police as actually their way out they'll they'll do things uh in hopes that they can trigger the police to actually uh respond with with heavy force uh if not lethal force sure that's happened to her too absolutely um so i i, I want to shift uh the conversation slightly um so earlier this year we had this long kind of discussion about disproportionate uh policing and incarceration in the Yolo County Jail, and that turned into something controversial. But really, I mean, we see that everywhere. Should that have been a, con a controversial conversation? You're talking about when I pointed out the fact that our jail on that given day was, I think it was 23 or 28% black and our population is 3% black. Correct. About, yes. Yes, I, that should not have been a point of contention. And in fact, since I said that, the county has had some workshops with the board, and um, at least two that I can recall, and received information from agencies like probation and the sheriff's department and the jail and the district attorney and health and human services. And everything I said was true. And in fact, it was worse because not only was the jail makeup disproportionate to our population, but arrests were disproportionate. For both kids and adults, and we're talking black and brown kids, mostly brown kids when you're talking about juveniles, but for, but, but still disproportionate for black and brown. Um, the children, for instance, that are taken by child welfare, removed from their parents, were disproportionate. Those kids that were taken away and where they were put, if it was out of county, which is never ideal because then it's hard for parents to visit, was disproportionately impacting um, black and brown children. So every, every aspect that they looked at when they received data about showed a disparity based on race lines. It should not have been controversial, and I think it was a missed opportunity because what the, what the conversation should be about is that's not what we want. How did we get there, and what do we do, need to do to fix it? Instead, the conversation was, I'm not doing anything wrong. Are you doing anything wrong? Who, it, it, like it was... It was, we we're not holding, holding ourselves accountable, and we're not going to hold ourselves accountable if we spend all our time arguing about whether or not it's true and then trying to prove that you're not the, the reason for it. And that's what that conversation was about. And there seemed to be a misunderstanding of what's going on um, because the response was, well, you know, you're calling a bunch of people racist, and, and really you're not. Um, and... And look, I, I'm as critical of uh, law enforcement and, and the DA 
uh, as anyone around. But, you know, it, this is a systemic issue, and we're talking about systemic racism, not necessarily individuals making bad decisions racism. Exactly right. Although, of course, because we're dealing with a system of humans, you're going to find examples of both. But no, predominantly, it's, it's, it's systemic. And I can't, as I sit here right now, tell you exactly why we have disproportionate arrests um, and detentions in our jail. I have theories, and until I get data and we actually look at all of the entrance points and all the decision-making points, we're just, it, that's all it's going to be is speculation and theories. And we have to be willing to do that work. And what I thought was really kind of amazing and, and cool in a way is after all of that happened, I did talk to one of the judges and the response from that judge was, listen, our decisions are public. I will advocate that we participate in a study where we look at all of these decisions from a perspective of whether or not we're having um, unintended consequences for people that are black and brown. That was the proper response. That's the response that says, yes, we have a problem. I don't like what this problem is, and let's figure out how to fix it. And I think going forward, we're going to be looking at solutions that include looking at data and trying to pinpoint where our issues are. I had a very interesting conversation last week with the sheriff from uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, uh, you know, he's one of the few black sheriffs that are actually really progressive. And I said, well, where's the racism coming from here? And, you know, a big part of it is where are you putting police resources? Well, you're putting police resources into, quote, unquote, these high crime areas. And, and so that tends to create, uh, you know, a disparity. But the other big uh, disparity is with drug arrests. And so, you know, every single study I've ever seen has basically showed that blacks and whites use drugs, sell drugs about the same rate. And yet 80% of the people that end up in the criminal legal system are black and brown. Why mm -hmm. is that? Um, from your perspective, yeah. why is that? Well, I mean, I think one of the, one of the responses is that if you're looking at poverty rates and you're looking at you know, let's say you have a rich white kid and his parents are gone on vacation for the week and he has a party at his house and they're all bring, brought their, their cocaine or their meth or whatever they brought. That's happening behind closed doors and the police probably don't see it, not in their face as much. And, and if they were to go plus these white kids with parents who are in, you know, on vacation, the parents would probably come back and, and have something to say about that. Whereas I, if I'm homeless, or if I, you know, don't have a place to, to close my door and do all and do these exact same things, and you're already look come out in my neighborhood looking for me, you're going to find what you're looking for. And so I think that's that's part of it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very complex, and there's a lot of different nuances to it. But we all know that every single one of us on the road, when we're in our car, is committing some traffic violation. But the way the law is currently is if you want to pull me over and ask me questions and see if I'm on probation or parole and therefore you can search me or just ask my consent to search because you're a little bit intimidating and maybe I'll say yes, you can do that. That's called pretext stops. You can stop people for speeding with the understanding that you're really looking for more. 
And if you only choose to do that to people that are black and brown, you're going to find sometimes what you're looking for. Not all the time, but sometimes. And the ones I hear about are just the ones that people get arrested because, you know, they found something. But if you're never looking at people that aren't black and brown, then you're never going to find what you're looking for because you're, you're just giving everyone that path. So it definitely has to do with where resources are, the perceptions of what needs to be policed, which is usually stems from some sort of weaponizing black and brown skin. Um, and then once they, people get put in the system and then, but you know, what we heard here in, in this county was, well, people were coming from different jurisdictions and coming up here and committing crimes. And I never really understood that argument because it still has to, the, the premise of that is still people were coming over, black people were coming over disproportionately to commit crimes, which I still think is, is um, a comment more on a reflection of who you think black and brown people are than actually what's happening. But yes, I, I do think it has to do with where police resources are and um, link them up with, with the, you know, poverty, because if people are, like I said, out in the open more and police are looking for you more, they're, they're going to arrest you more. And then the other kind of big controversial issue right now is zero bail. Uh, what's your perspective on that? <laughs> the, the purpose of zero bail, let's just start off with the purpose of zero bail. This wasn't bail reform. Okay. This isn't Prop 25. It's on the um, November ballot. This was, we have a pandemic that will spread very quickly when you have people that can't social distance and are in cramped quarters. And that's what we see all the time is when you look at big outbreaks, they're at care homes where there are people there can't social distance and or prisons or jails. You know, look at San Quentin, look at Folsom now, look at Santa Rita jail in Alameda County. So the purpose of zero bail was to empty out the jail as much as possible because it was never going to empty all the way under zero bail, but empty it out as much as possible so people could single cell. So you could, like Yolo County, for, we closed down the dorms before Lineburg was actually um, torn down because of the reconstruction. Uh, you could have isolation wards. You can quarantine if needed be. We've used those in our jail. We've had people that had symptoms and they've been isolated and quarantined. So it was to give the jail the tools to either avoid this situation or quickly address it so it didn't get out of hand. And that being the purpose of zero bail, yes, that was successful. Because to date, as far as I'm aware, we haven't had any zero or we haven't had any positive tests by people that are incarcerated. And we haven't had any zero tests from the people that um, work for the sheriff's department, because of course that would be a disaster too. If a sheriff personnel gets COVID, then they go home to their family, they get COVID. Maybe they go to the grocery store, they get COVID. It's, it's exponential. We know this now from this pandemic. So zero bail, what happened was the chief justice for the state of California recommended to different, all the jurisdictions, why don't you come up with an emergency bail schedule that includes the concept of zero bail? Our local courts did that. Not all local courts did that. So then the chief justice said, all right, I'm going to make a statewide bail schedule. I'm going to make it so that jurisdictions don't even have the option. And that was put in place. And it was pretty similar to what our local bail schedule was, although not 100% the same. And then at some point, the state said, all right, we're going to now let the jurisdictions control this again. 
So we're going to remove the state bail schedule and let the local jurisdictions um, do what they think is best. And our local jurisdiction went back to the local jail, um, the bail schedule that included zero bail. And I believe they intend to stay the course. I, I think I read that even recently that Judge McAdam, our presiding judge, said that because it is working to for the purpose in which it was put in place, which is to make sure people don't get sick and die when they're in jail. So are people then uh, being released and then committing all these horrible crimes, or is that pretty rare? Well, we know that people have been released on zero bail and have been rearrested. Um, most are rearrested on misdemeanors or probation violations, which are, don't even amount to a crime. But I saw the press release, and you did too, that you know there was a fairly serious arrest recently. But the ironic thing about that gentleman is he was put on probation by consent um, of the parties in court order and then was released in the community. And then I think what the issue was, he was picked up on zero bill afterwards. But I think there was, it was like a drunken public or something else that was pretty minor. Right. And clearly that, that gentleman was having um, some serious issues adjusting. And I don't think it's, we can blame it on zero bail. The, the DAs have the ability when they see cases come through to ask for uh, deviation from zero bail. Judges have the authority to deviate from zero bail. And um, other entities have the ability to put holds on people to prevent release. So I think it's very simplistic to say it's zero bail and then end of story. Do we and, know if yeah. uh, in some of these cases the DA is asking for them to be remanded or... Uh, what do we know about that? Um, I'm what I know about that is that when we had as a group, so it was um, all the criminal justice stakeholders met with the court, and there was they were soliciting input as to whether or not we should keep zero bail, and everyone they solicited input from said yes, you should keep zero bail. I personally said I don't care if it's the county one or the state one, but yes, I think you should keep zero bail. The district attorney favored um, the emergency bail schedule that was under the county one. And the judge at that time said, if you think that there are cases that shouldn't be zero bail, utilize the statutes that are in place. And if they've said that more than once, I'm personally not aware of any that have had, um, that have, they've requested a deviation from zero bail, that request has been denied, and then they went out and got rearrested. It could, it could be, I'm not aware of it. So has the DA requested that they go back on zero bail or end zero bail or modify it, or do you know? Not that I'm aware of. Usually those sorts of policy questions, they are, they are emails that include all the parties. The judges, that's just what the judges require because otherwise you're having conversations with the other parties being left out. I have not seen any emails or requests um, to relook at zero bail. So isn't it strange that they they release press release after press release? I mean, we're not talking like a few. We're talking like at least 10, I would say, um, in not that long a period of time. They've been on local news channels, and yet they have the power to change this law or at least request that it be changed, and it doesn't seem like they've utilized that. Yeah, it's been confusing for me 
because usually you can see, okay, I understand the point. Like, I may not agree with it, but I get what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to influence. Not 100% sure what they're trying to influence here. Because like I said, Prop 25 is on the ballot in November. It wants to do away with bail in lieu of risk assessments. I know the um, spokesperson from the district attorney's office most recently had lamented that zero bail doesn't even take into account risk level. That seems to almost be an endorsement of Prop 25. Um, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I've, that one actually does perplex me. Oh, good. I'm not the only <laughs> yeah, one. You're not, you're not alone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, uh, we are just about out of time. So I wanted to thank you for coming on and, uh, sharing your story from Yolo County. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Tracy Olson, the public defender from Yolo County. And we were talking about Yolo County and also the broader criminal legal system. This has been Everyday Injustice. I am your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.